From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. Yeah, I always remember my grandmother had this old, you know, 1920s machine. Yeah. And the CSL machine. Yeah. Here it goes. Whether or not it is corrupt, the fact is that people feel it is. And that's really all that that matters. I mean, this is a spectator sport. It's about, it's about feeling. Actually, you said someone's got now 35. That said you gave now yes. 35? Yeah. Now 35 is the rarest. Is it? Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Sam Altman and the phenomenon of boomerang CEOs, how VAR could get even more pervasive, and the now that's what I call music super fan talks. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show. That'll be asking Santa for a super fan of its own. On this morning's nine o'clock show monologue, Brendan Courtney began with some heroic goings-on in the Rebel County. This is brilliant down in Cork yesterday. Three heroes, not one, not two, but three heroes jumped into the River Lee to save the life of a woman in a dramatic river rescue after her car crashed through barriers and went into the water. One of the heroes is quoted saying, you don't actually stop to think when it happens. Anybody would have done if they were in the same situation. I'm not so sure they would, our heroes. Our heroes are Kevin Ruse, William Ross and Farid Langans. The three men are being hailed as just incredible for what they did. So it was during the day yesterday, a vehicle drove through the safety barriers on Kennedy Key and plummeted into the water. I mean, that's probably my biggest fear. Terrifying. Two of the guys, uh, Fareed Langan and Kevin Roos, are actually were on a trawler in the water. They are fishermen and they were uploading the day's catch when they saw the incident and they jumped straight into the water. And then on the key, an electrician, William Ross, he saw they were slightly struggling, so he grabbed a hammer and he jumped into the water and they smashed the window and got her out of the car. I think that's a great story. More heroes on the street just throwing themselves selflessly into danger to save others. Absolutely great story. Fair play, those men. In fairness, here's two more men that deserve fair play to be cast in their direction. Sean and Pat Kelly are twin brothers and a two-man wedding band in Philadelphia. And they put together a mashup of 20 of their most requested songs that they play in one minute. <laughs> so, see, if you're sitting down and you're having your cup of tea, if you have a pen and paper, see how many of these songs you can name. It's just, it's just under a minute and it's, a, it's actually really good. The most requested songs at weddings. Here you go. This is my brain at 3.59am when I can't get back to sleep. We finally rock has been a hopeless tonight. We finally rock has been a hopeless tonight. I believe in the dollar. Just to sit in the rhythm of my heart. There's a chance we can make it now. We'll be rocking till the sun goes down. Thank you, Chuck. Chuck, Chuck, Chuck. Guys like what, what, what? My butt. Shadows away. Be fun. Be fun. Be fun. Be fun. Be fun. Be fun. Be 
compliments me. There was a few very American ones in there and I have to say, first time I listened to it, it's fun. Second time, it's a headache. So don't bother listening to that again. Uh, that was obviously Taylor Swift. There's, there's like party rocket starts with it's a lot of fun isn't it and uh, Sean and Pat Kelly just they're giving us a flavour of what they have to listen to night after night after night so the happy couple met while trying speed dating and now they're tying the knot with a speed wedding reception you've got 60 seconds to eat your beef or salmon I like it meanwhile a hairy documentary maker is becoming less hairy it seems Louis Thoreau, uh, I don't know if you saw his incredible, he's a new series on BBC Two, obviously recorded earlier in the year. And actually he, the, the one that, that jumped out and everybody's discussing is the amazing hour or half hour, I think it was, that he spent with uh, Joan Collins, 90 years of age and, you know, unapologetic, fabulous as all get it. Absolutely amazing. I'm a huge Louis Thoreau fan. First of all, I'm quite surprised. Um, he's only 53. I thought he was older than that. That's not that that's important I thought he was much older than me um, he posted you may or may not have seen this I hadn't seen this he posted on social media a little earlier on that he has alopecia and it's in his facial hair in alopecia so he's keeping his hair in his head but the alopecia in his facial hair and it's moved into his eyebrows that's, that's not the crack is it uh, he wrote um, he posted I'd like to know how I'm supposed, this is a quote from him directly, I'd like to know how I'm supposed to continue a career based largely on raising and lowering different eyebrows without any eyebrows. Alopecia, I'm seriously thinking of getting them tattooed back on. Feels like a big step. Thoughts, he asked his followers. Yeah, I mean, at least he's having a bit of a sense of humour about it. That's got to be a pain, especially if you are Louis through and you made a career out of being shocked with your eyebrows raised. Anyway, we'll follow that. I send, we send him love and light and positivity sure Louis wants love and light and positivity so much as well eyebrows and who wouldn't pop quiz hotshot what's the 2023 word of the year Brendan as you covered each year as you probably know the big dictionaries Oxford English in the UK and Merriam-Webster dictionary released their word of the year and the American Merriam-Webster's word of the year is guess what what would it be I was quite surprised at this it's the word authentic. Authentic was selected as the 2023 word of the year. Landing among the most looked up words in the dictionary with 500, half a million entries, the company said in their press release. Wow, interesting. So they've, you know, they've gone on to say in a year that chat GBT is disrupting academic integrity. AI has driven Hollywood actors and writers to the picket line. Yeah, it really has. Uh, celebrities like Prince Harry and Britney Spears sought to tell their own stories. Uh, the, summer's, the summer's hottest blockbuster was about a world of pristine plastic colliding with flesh and blood reality, Barbie, obviously. Um, it's very interesting. They're, they've got some really sort of profound quotes. 2023 was the year that authenticity morphed into performance. It's very meaning made fuzzy amidst the onslaught of algorithms and alternative facts. And I love this line. The more we crave authenticity, the more we question it. Oh, get your head around that. So the dictionary definition of authentic is it's a synonym for real defined as not false or imitation. <laughs> and uh, just this little line from the people in Merriam-Webster Dictionary. Although clearly a desirable quality, authentic is hard to define and subject to debate. Two reasons it sends many people to the dictionary to look it up. Now, <laughs> have a cup of tea and think about that. Authentic. Is authentic even really authentic? Now. Or as we like to say here on Radio, 
genuinely? Elsewhere, Robert De Niro's ranting, not talking Italian. Love this. Well, don't love this, but was fascinated by this. Love is, we use love too easily, don't we? (laughs) I like this story. Robert De Niro was fuming on Monday night. He was making a speech at the Gotham Awards in New York City, using a teleprompter. Um, He was there to actually accept an award for his latest film with Scorsese and DiCaprio, Killers of the Flower Moon, which I have seen and I loved Really liked it. Wouldn't, wouldn't normally be my kind of film, but I really loved it. So it's obviously going to do well at the awards. So he was there. And as De Niro probably would do, uh, and probably the awards organisers know it, he would use it to make a political statement. And he has a particular beef, as we know, it's very public with Do- Donald Trump. And when he went to make his speech, using a teleprompter, so it was obviously quite a wordy speech, uh, they had edited his speech and removed his comments about, well, it would appear, removed his comments about Donald Trump and in the description in the reports they say he kind of it says here in in the Daily Mail that he messed up his speech before explaining but actually he didn't mess up his speech at all in fact he was brilliant 80 year old remembering the paragraph that they had taken out and then pointing out that they had edited his speech listen to him Lying has become just another tool in the charlatan's arsenal the former president lied to us more than 30,000 times during his four years in office. And he's keeping up the pace in his current campaign of retribution. But with all his lies, he can't hide his soul. He attacks the weak, destroys the gifts of nature, and shows disrespect, for example, by using Pocahontas as a slur. Filmmakers, on the other hand, strive. This is where I came in and I saw that they edited all that. Oh, imagine editing Robert De Niro's speech. Wow, that was brave. And how brilliant of him to point it out. But yeah, I mean, particularly using a teleprompter, you'd think you could trust the people that were putting you up on stage not to edit your speech. And and he sounded brilliant, I think. So anyway, he did not mess up. He certainly did not mess up. Robert De Niro, you can edit his teleprompter, but you can't edit his brain. Don't think we'll be able to top that, so, well, let's edit out the rest of Brendan's monologue from this morning's nine o'clock show right there. OpenAI's Sam Altman is the latest boomerang CEO. That's what it says here. But what, pray tell, is a boomerang CEO? That's the question Claire Byrne puts to RTE business journalist Adam McGuire. Yeah, it's it's a long-standing tradition for CEOs. They get ousted or they resign, they retire, only for them to return a, a, a while later. And some of the best-known companies, best-known bosses rank in that list of boomerang CEOs. You named a few of them. Steve Jobs at Apple is an example. Michael Dell of Dell, a boomerang CEO. Jack Dorsey at Twitter. Howard Schultz at uh, Starbucks and Bob Iger at Disney. All examples of boomerang CEOs. It's fair to say, though, Altman uh, probably wins in terms of the shortest time frame between being ousted and coming back was only a matter of days. Usually it takes at least a couple of months, usually yeah, a couple of years before they come back. Yeah, it was less than a week. Yeah, yeah. So that's quite remarkable. But yeah, he's one of, of many uh, boomerang CEOs. Now, I noticed there weren't any 
female names in that list? No, I, I found one example of a female boomerang CEO at a big company, uh, Susan Cameron of Reynolds America, which they're neither house nor na- household names. It's a big US tobacco firm that makes brands like Camel. Other than that, though, they are very hard to come by amongst big companies. Part of that is because there are still so few female CEOs of large companies. According to Fortune, just over 10% of the current Fortune 500 companies, that's the biggest US companies in terms of revenue, are led by a female. So one one in 10 led by a female. And a quarter of those only became CEO in the last year. So it's a really shocking statistic in this day and age. If you look at smaller companies, the, the spread is a little bit better. But in terms mm-hmm. of big companies, still very male heavy. And some claim as well that when there when there are female CEOs of big uh, firms, they don't tend to boomerang because they do a better job at the company. They do a better job in succession management, so they don't have to come back ah, then to, to save the show. So when and they actually, are, then, we we might touch on that in, in a while. You know how much of this is associated with um, ego. You know, yeah, nobody yeah, nobody can do it like yeah. me. Yeah, there is an element of that. Yeah, and there's a kind of founder myth as well in terms of you know that they're the people with the vision to, yeah. to, to make turn things around. Well, we go to one of the I think the most famous examples is uh, Steve. Jobs and it's a very interesting case study as well. Yeah, this is the man who, who really shaped so much of, of our modern tech from our, the way our desktop computers look uh, to the touchscreen smartphone. Not obviously the only person responsible for all that but very, very influential in it. So he co-founded Apple uh, back in 1976 with Steve Wozniak and it, it became one of the big players in the in the, the burgeoning personal computer market going toe so with big players like IBM. By the 80s though he felt like he needed someone with a management kind of view because he wasn't a manager uh, to come in and, 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 and take a better look at the company and maybe kind of improve marketing as well. So he lured a man called John Scully who was president of uh, PepsiCo at the time and he, he used the legendary really you know typical Steve Jobs over the top line of do you want to spend the rest of your life selling sugared water or do you want a chance to change the world and that's how he, he, he brought him over. So Scully came over as CEO uh, freeing up jobs to, to do work on the actual computers and it was started off as a relatively good relationship but it soured very very quickly uh, Jobs uh, the first computer he made after this move was the Lisa and it was a, a, a flop basically massively overpriced um, but there was also this odd management style that he had which butted up against the way Scully operated in a, in a much more mm. traditional managerial kind so of style So he just he wasn't just bad at being a manager according to himself he's bad at working with a manager Yeah exactly in the kind of traditional constraints that a company would tend to work in so Scully tried to get Jobs and the, the Macintosh division under control that prompted Jobs to then try and get Scully ousted altogether having lured him in himself uh, when Scully got word of this he managed to get the board on his side and it was Jobs who, who was shown the door ultimately but after a fairly positive run initially, Scully uh, uh, was was ousted as well in 1993 uh, uh, because the company wasn't doing particularly well. Apple then spent the next couple of years losing a lot of ground to rivals, software, hardware falling behind. Uh, and by the mid-90s, it was on the verge of bankruptcy. Yeah. And it basically needed to, to find a way to upgrade its software to try and compete. Uh, but it couldn't do that in-house. It didn't have the expertise. So its Hail Mary pass was to buy another company that was doing that. And, and then they could kind of absorb that expertise. So they snapped up a company in 1997 called Next or NEXT, which was founded and headed uh, up by none other than Steve Jobs. And you can imagine how, back. how much he enjoyed that phone call. <laughs> yeah. uh, we'd like to buy the company uh, from you, please. Uh, $427 million at the time as well. Huge amount of money. So it was finalised in February 97. Jobs essentially became the CEO again by July and he set about then uh, restructuring and, and revitalising the company. And the software that they bought in Next became the basis for iTunes, for Mac OS, the operating software for the App Store. And of course, Jobs then helped to bring in the iPod, the iPhone, the iPad, all that stuff. And in August 2011, just two months before he died, 
Apple became the most valuable company in, in the world and stock market listed company in the world. So mm-hmm. a really, really remarkable turnaround and, and definitely a, se- a successful second stint as, as CEO. So the cornerstone of what he eventually did at Apple belonged to this company he bought for 467 That, that Apple, yeah, that he set up after he was kicked out of Apple, he set it up and it became... Oh, so he did iTunes and he did the he, well, App Store yeah, and all he, of that well, under he, the guise he, yeah, of Next. Yeah, and then Apple bought it, brought him back in and that became the, the kind of cornerstone for, for their kind of revival, mm-hmm. really. Okay, it's fascinating, isn't it? No. And what about Disney then and Bob Iger? Yeah, they're still going through their second coming of, of the boomerang CEO, Bob Iger. He first became CEO of Disney in 2005 and he, he really revolutionised the company. He's the one responsible for acquiring uh, Toy Story maker Pixar and actually there's a link to another uh, Boomerang CEO he mentioned Steve Jobs was responsible for creating Pixar while he was in his wilderness years uh, between uh, Apple CEO uh, uh, terms and he made billions from its sale to Disney he also became the biggest shareholder single shareholder in Disney after it was bought uh, or after it bought Pixar Iger though also went on to buy Lucasfilms so he bought the Star Wars franchises he bought Marvel so he acquired all the films like Iron Man and, and uh, Captain America all those rights and eventually paid $71 billion to Rupert Murdoch to take over Fox bringing in The Simpsons and all the other things that Fox Studios made over the years and it's generally believed he overspent especially on Fox but Having those franchises in that big library actually proved crucial then uh, later on because when Disney Plus was launched in 2019 they had this massive catalogue of not only the Disney films but all this other stuff that they could actually put up there and, and make available. And that was essentially Iger's crowning achievement. He, he retired in early 2020 uh, and it was kind of went out in a blaze of glory, had, you know, set Disney up for the future, was taking on Netflix and all that stuff. Uh, and he, re- he was replaced by another Bob, Bob Chapek, uh, who was in charge of the Parks Division up until then. A bit of an unlucky general, though. He came in in February 2020, so just at the start of the pandemic in terms of what the impact it was having, which meant the parks closed down, the cinemas were, weren't open, so they couldn't show uh, films and make money that way. Um, so he, he really was in a difficult position from the start. But he also restructured the company in a way that really annoyed the creatives in Disney. And he also seemed to have a hard time managing the talent. For, there was a big row with Scarlett Johansson, for example, that ended up in a court case over uh, the money earned from one of the, the Marvel films as well. So uh, uh, you know, he, he didn't do a particularly good job. And, and he, it was felt he was given a bit of a poison chalice by Iger because... You know, you're coming into from not only was Iger so successful, he also left him a big debt pile and a massively bloated company to try and fix. So uh, it, it, within two years, Chapek was was ousted, basically. Uh, and uh, the, the handy thing for Iger, though, was that he had done a lot of the, the hard work for him. He had cut uh, a lot of the, the jobs and all that kind of stuff. So Iger could come back as the... In a blaze know, of glory. Yeah, he came back as the hero. RTE business journalist Adam McGuire talking boomerang CEOs on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. It was a treat for fans of old school pop chart music on this afternoon's Ray Darcy show when Ray spoke to Rob Garvey, who he described as Ireland's uh, greatest authority on the now collection. Aren't you, Rob? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's yeah. not make it a hashtag. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> right. But I'll go with it. Actually, but, uh, you said someone's got now 35. Is that what you said? You gave the now yes, 35? Yeah. Now is 35 is the rarest is vinyl. It? Now, whether it was on vinyl or CD, whatever you gave them, if it was on vinyl, tell them to be very careful with it. No, I'd say that was CD. Was it? I just think, because I did the den during the 90s, that would yeah. have been CD, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Well, well, it would, but now 35, which is looking at you right there. I'm looking at it, yeah. It was I... the very last one issued on vinyl. Ah. So it's extremely rare and very valuable. Right. So I won't drop it. You see, I told yep. you, Gemma, yep. he, he knows everything there is to know about <laughs> now. Uh, how many bits have you got? How many, like, units? Oh, I, nearly, f- nearly 500 of them. Have you? Yeah, there's there's 116 actual of the main, main series released. Once, 116 was released last week. Right. But there's all sorts of spin-offs and the spin-offs have gone ridiculous in recent years. Yeah, like the one I know is now now Christmas. Yeah, well, even, like, I mean, that's, that's 
that's a minnow compared to what's going on at the moment. They've got all sorts of box sets. There's a yearbooks. The yearbooks you really like. The yearbooks are vinyl only compilations. Right. They've gone back to the 70s before the series even began. They've been releasing yearbooks from 1976. Uh-huh. They and a very, very clever, very clever marketing team going on because they're sporadically releasing them. So you'll release 76 and then 83. You get them too. You want to fill the gaps in, you know? Yeah. And then you become a, an addict yeah. like myself. I, I, and you have them on vinyl, CD, cassette? Uh, I didn't get the cassettes. Okay. No, I have them on uh, for the Wii. I had PlayStation oh, yes. games. They had all sorts of other... Did they release them on mini-discs? Mini they released on mini-discs for a couple of years. Right. I think between mid-30s, about three or four mini-discs released. Right. They're quite rare as well. Okay. Um, I don't have them. I have one, actually, mini-disc. Right. One mini-disc. Right. Bring years. us right back then uh, to 1983, 40 years ago, the first now. I'm slightly younger than you, so I don't remember the first one. Oh, right, right. <laughs> but you know the story. I do know the story, How yeah. did the nows come about? Um, well, it's a little bit vague, but basically uh, Virgin Media, Virgin uh, Richard Branson, uh, he was uh, he fancied this girl in a local shop and he went to the local shop and he used to go in regularly it was like a bric-a-brac shop and there was a poster um, of Now That's What I Call Music with a, a pig on it which is a 1920s bacon advert and he bought that for somebody else in a in a the record company somewhere and he gifted that so that sort of started that was the reason he went in and then they were sitting in a meeting wanting to come up with a compilation to compare to uh, the Top of the Pops compilations, yeah. I might remember them. They were all happening. But the way it happened back then was the record companies released music for, that they had the rights to. And then they decided to get together. So it was Virgin and EMI, I think. But somebody else well, got together and decided, we, we're going to do this. We're going to beat them. We're going to release our own stuff. Not not cover versions, our own ones, all the big ones. Had to come up with a title for it. And then now that's what I call music poster, which had been bought. So the pig said, now that's what I call music. Yeah, it's a bacon ad, 1920s bacon right. ad. Um, and that was hanging up. In right. the in the uh, studio or in the, the, office. the office, and they, that's how they got the title of the actual uh-huh. album. And then they released them. They started releasing them eighty three. And that's why the pig day. was featured on some of the ah, the marketing. The pig was featured on now one to now five. Right. They then got rid of him uh, and brought him back actually now one hundred, and he is back this week. On now that's right. Ca- Forty years is the big compilation that's been released this week. And did, he you ever, got it. did you ever apply for Mastermind? <laughs> I did not apply for Mastermind. <laughs> did you? No, I didn't. No, no didn't. I didn't. No, I didn't. Uh, not yet. On, now we're going to talk. We're going yeah, to talk. Yeah, yeah. But, but music is king, I suppose, in this in this little interview. It is indeed. Yeah. Uh, and uh, just when you look at the track listing of the first one, yeah. it, it packed a punch, didn't it? Ah, uh, listen I'm, from Phil opening it up. Presumably yes. you're going to say Phil Collins opened up. And I mean Phil Collins. You have to think back then. 83, Phil Collins was probably at its peak personally I think you know Genesis is what yes. happened and, he yeah. goes, and the very opening song on it is probably what you're going to play right no, now no not, oh, not. not no I played it already <laughs> oh did you okay. I was going to play this I, I, yeah, I'll play the music you do the talk every now and then I get a little bit nervous that the best of all the years have gone by
Bonnie Tyler. Do you break up? Do you break up? Yeah. <laughs> Slow sets. Is there anybody notable for their absence? Yes, there's now? a few. Yeah. I mean, it, it's fairly well known if you're, anybody's actually into it. Madonna, Prince, Jackson. In the 80s, they weren't there. And they weren't there because hits, the hits compilation, again, if you're of a certain era, you'll remember the hits compilation. Uh, the hits came out as sort of a, a competitor to now. now. Now, you know, they rewrote, rewrote history when it came out first. And after issue three, after now three, Hits One came out. Now, Hits was a compilation from the other record labels. So Warner Brothers, I think, might have been Sony, I'm not 100% sure at the time. And they had their own labels or their own artists, which was Madonna and Prince and Jackson. And they released Hits One. And Hits One was released when Now Four was released. Uh, and Hits One went to number one in the charts. Now Four did not go to uh-huh. number one in the charts. So there was a bit of a war going on for a couple of years. Eventually, Now won the whole battle and it's still there. Hits sort of tried to come back a couple of years ago. It didn't really happen for them. And if, at this stage, what's happened, the music industry is obviously very different than when it, in yeah. 1983. And most of the record labels and the songs and the artists are all together. So on most of the Nows Now, you actually get a wider spectrum of music, not just a particular They label. had that other um, series... The best something ever, the best disco yeah, album the best ever, dance the best, album, best album, album. But look, the whole compilation market went mad. That's, yeah, it went that's huge. in the 90s, yeah. yeah. Good value for money. Very good value for money, <laughs> yes. Well, actually, that's the main reason why I think the, a lot of people, well, especially my age, got into the nows, was the value for money. My entrance point into now was I wanted a particular fine young cannibal song aging myself here now. Which one? Blue. Well Johnny Come Home was one of their big songs and I really liked this song Blue and I remember going down to the local record store, store in Nace um, looking for Blue and they didn't have it but the guy behind the counter said to me well it was you know, I have it on this compilation album and he showed me the compilation album and I went okay right whatever my pocket money was I could afford the single and I could just about stretch to that album and I said okay I'm going to buy that I'll get the blue and I'll get the other songs yes. and that got me in that was now six now six I think Right. and then I, I, I kept going from there <laughs> which was the most successful now compilation now 44 and there's a really good reason for it it was 1999 it was released at that stage CDs were still at their peak and it's a great gift to give to your from your granny to your grandson, your granddaughter. You get an O forty four in your stock and away you go. Um I think it was two two point five million or something. I may be wrong with right. figures, but it's definitely the biggest selling now now album ever. And it's because of nineteen ninety nine and Christmas gifts. The now that's what I call music super fan, Rob Garvey, talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon. Mind that vinyl. It's been 300 years since the wedding dress was invented, apparently. That's a thing I learned today. The Dress, Three Centuries of Weddings, is an exhibition that runs from Friday until Sunday in Atkins Hall, Dunmanway in West Cork. Michelle O'Mahony and Gwen McGurk organised the exhibition and they spoke this morning to Brendan Courtney. So, first of all, how did you meet? Well, I spoke well, I started, uh, myself and Gwen met at the Dunmanway Historical Association, we were at a meeting to discuss how the future of Dunmanway Historical Association would go forward and how we could come up with some fundraising ideas. And Gwen mentioned she had a private collection of dresses and we linked that with the fact that Dunmanway Historical Association had compiled before COVID two booklets of old black and white photographs to do with weddings. And we sold them in the local community as wedding pictorials. So we decided we'd link both and we came up with the idea of three centuries of wedding dresses, the dress, 
and we it's basically a case of a meeting of minds. The historian with a passion for history and fashion with the couturier and costumier Gwen. Yeah, so that's what's kind of really interesting. It's really authentic, which is the word du jour from America, in that you're a historian, Michelle, and you're a costume yes. designer. So this is this is the real deal. We know this, we're going to get re, like a real insight into the history of, of weddings. Yes. Well, de- um, definitely, I think I'm approaching it from the point of view of how history can be read through a dress. The way we wed, yeah, the way we were, yeah. how would you read a dress? What does that tell us about society? Um, and the wedding dress is a great communicator of fashion trends. It's a great community of, uh, communicator of society, society's norms, what people perceived at the time, viewpoints they held. And it's also a great insight into class structure. You know, the difference between the wedding dress of the rich and famous to how that influenced the wedding dress of the ordinary person, um, the various textiles that were used. And Gwen will be able to take you through all the everything from bare bosoms to raising hemlines. <laughs> I can talk now. about the society in the background. Now, listen, uh, <laughs> I have to get this mention in for sure. You are Dunmanway, and many people will know this. I didn't know this. Uh, home or birthplace of the Sam Maguire. Yes, Dunmanway is the hometown of Sam Maguire. And I suppose, Brendan, one of the things that Dunmanway likes is that we don't mind sharing the cup around <laughs> the country. Good for you. Um, because we have Sam the Man, um, and it's the hometown of Sam Maguire, which a lot of people don't realise. No, it's amazing. And so that probably, does that fuel a little bit, add sort of, uh, I suppose, fuel to the flame of the historical association of Dunmanway that sort of pushes you along? Yes, it yeah, does, yeah. it does. Um, we've we've got um, a Sam Maguire trail. We've got walking a walking tour um, for people who like going out in the countryside because Sam Maguire's home place is in the countryside in a place called Malabraca. And there's some lovely walks up through the woods and up through the mountains that way. So it adds a whole other dimension outside of the, the what we would remember Sam Maguire for with the GAA and the trophy. It brings a whole element of tourism into the area as well, which is very good for the area. And that's what I suppose I'm going, going a full circle before we dive into the dresses because this exhibition is a fun fundraiser for the Historical Association of the Manway, is that right? Yes, yes, it's a fundraiser, so all the proceeds from the event will be going to the Manway Historical Association to make sure that we can continue, they can continue to have a presence in the town as they act almost like the one-stop um, tourist information point in the town as well. And they do dig deep into the various characters of the town and Sam Maguire being one of them. Brilliant. So it's everything and all the proceeds will go Brilliant. to the Historical Association. Both myself and Gwen have given our time free in organising the event. Well done. Uh, so Gwen, you collect wedding dresses. I'm just going to jump straight yes, in I there. Yes, I do. Go on. <laughs> Why? <laughs> oh, that's a really good question. Um, I think um, I'm originally from Dublin, so I moved to West Cork um, about a year, over a year ago. My mum is from Kinsale. Yes. Um, I live a little bit outside the um, Manway. But my mum is from Kinsale, so uh, my grandmother was a dressmaker. So I just grew up um, listening to all these stories about dresses, and my mum tells these amazing stories too about things were made. And then my mum talks about her wedding dress, and uh, so I, I feel I'm back to my roots now. But yeah. um, I went, I studied fashion design um, at NCAD, and then while I was there, there was a competition for Wedding Dress of the Year, and that was on the Late Late Show a long time ago. Wow. Um, that was when Gay, when Gay Byrne um, hosted it. Yeah. And um, then people started to ring the college, and then I started to make these dresses. And um, so, but I left Ireland quite young. Um, I went to Italy 
and I worked in fashion there. Great. And then I moved to Verona and then I started working in costume there. But I've always been a collector of lace. But I started to seriously collect about 2015. And then I did a fashion shoot with um, a photographer friend of mine and we did in a beautiful hotel in Innsbruck in Austria. And tell me this, so how many wedding dresses do you mm-hmm. have in your collection now? I think we're going to sh- be showing about 20. Yeah. yeah. I still have, because I restore them, so I've Amazing. restored about those. And uh, the oldest one we have, yeah, go ahead. So <laughs> no, but I remember, like, so I don't know if we're a similar age, but in the 80s, my mother made both my sister's wedding dresses. My grandmother made the bridesmaids dresses. So part of our culture as a family was going to buy the pattern, going to buy the fabric. I remember one year yes. the fabric was stolen out of the back of the car. I remember there was drama in the house. But the whole, <laughs> the, the front room or the parlour in my grandmother's and my mother's then would be completely taken over with patterns and cutting because they're were, they were huge dresses as well. So it was very much part yes. of our culture, isn't it? Yes, it is. And it's, we're losing all those skills, you know? Yeah. Um, and you have lovely memories and obviously that's how you got into fashion design, yeah, you know, it's all input. And um, yeah, and I, yeah, I always remember my grandmother had this old, you know, 1920s machine. Yeah. And the singer sewing just, machine. Yeah. Here it goes. Amazing. Well, the dress, the dress I have actually was pre, it's all, the oldest one, the one that's 1860, is all handmade. Of course like it would no, be, yeah. So it's before, because the, the machine was invented in 1851, uh, but it really became common in 1865. That's why you have all the, the big dress dresses. But yeah, the 80s people had, uh, we call them meringue dress. Yeah. So we have a couple of those as well. Amazing. That's Michelle O'Mahony and Gwen McGurk talking to Brendan Courtney this morning about their exhibition The Dress, Three Centuries of Weddings, which is running in Dunmanway, West Cork, this weekend. If the acronym VAR makes your blood boil, you may want to skip this next bit because the soccer powers that be want to extend VAR's remit to cover more aspects of the game than is currently the case. Second captain's Ken Early opined on this development on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Now, Ken, you and I have discussed your feelings about VAR in the past. So how are you today? <laughs> um, I mean, <laughs> obviously I've become a, a sort of single issue bore. Um, this, uh, and so this story is essentially that they, you know, why not have more of the thing? You know, everyone's so happy with this. Why not have more of it? Um, you know, so they're, so they're having meetings today. To be honest, I would be pretty surprised if they come out of this meeting announcing uh, sweeping new uh, powers for uh, VAR. But I suppose it is uh, possible. Mm-hmm. Well, this is the the lawmaking body, IFAB. IFAB. Um, they're meeting in a, a hotel somewhere near Heathrow today. So you can imagine them all sitting around the table going, oh, yes, we should do more of this thing, which really annoys football fans as it is when it's used to the extent that it's currently used. Yeah, I mean, so I, I, I can understand the idea that they have. I mean, the, the logic of this move would be, well, you know, we can check all these things and yet there are some things which arbitrarily we don't check and sometimes mistakes happen on these things that we don't check. So why don't we just check those things as well? And then we'll have fewer mistakes, um, which, you know, might seem like a good idea to someone who hadn't seen um, how this has actually worked in practice over the last uh, few years. 
you know, I mean, the the idea that you can purge mistakes from football is should by now uh, obviously be <laughs> people should be able to see that that's that's not actually possible. The reason being that a lot of the so-called mistakes aren't actually questions of fact, but of opinion or interpretation. Um, so we saw, for instance, recently the Arsenal manager Mikel Arteta. Uh, get extremely angry over some decisions that were given against his team in a match against Newcastle. Uh, according to him, this was a scandalous disgrace. He was embarrassed to be part of it. He was sick. Uh, this is too important, guys. This is too important. He's talking about football. He says, this is too important for these kinds of mistakes. We can't allow this anymore. And then, you know, they actually kind of looked at the mistakes um, that have been given against his team or sort of put it to their panel which sort of goes through all the decisions and votes you know there's five on the panel they decide whether it's right or wrong and it turned out that you know actually the panel thought they were the right right decisions or you know they had a three two uh margin yeah yeah three of us think this is the right decision two of us think it's wrong there is no correct decision you know it's a question of opinion or interpretation so the idea that simply by having more of it you're going to improve things is just so it's i'm i'm clutching my head i can't believe I can't believe that, that people are still making this mistake, but um, but here we are. Well, look, it's it's the timing of it as well. I mean, you've mentioned a, a couple of the controversial decisions and the Sun have helpfully set them out here for us, going back to February, Arsenal and Brentford, September, Liverpool and Spurs, Forest and Brentford, Newcastle and Arsenal, as you mentioned, Spurs and Chelsea, that crazy match uh, last month, which was uh, ended up being a 4-1 win to Chelsea. But but it's because those incidents have happened in fairly quick succession that I think people might expect there would be a meeting held to discuss the future use of VAR in any way, shape or form, not to extend its use. I mean, do you know what the logic is behind this? Is it more about protecting the referee again or, or, or what's the thinking? Well, the, the logic is um, the sort of well-meaning um, people thinking, oh, you know, we can improve things by just adding more refereeing. I mean, it, it's clear if you step back and look at it, the, that the effect of, I mean, the, the whole point of bringing it in in the first place was, hmm, the referees are always making mistakes in football and that causes people to get really angry uh, and to go mad. Maybe we can sort of reduce that anger a little bit by by uh, ironing out some of these mistakes by, by enabling video reviewing. But actually... What in fact happens is that you just get more referees being involved, inserting more mistakes, um, and the mistakes that are made. You know, you could you could, you often see an argument made along the basis of, well, we've looked at all the decisions, and you know, last season we had 12% wrong decisions, and this season it's down to 8%, uh, and so that's an improvement. But the idea that, like, the point is, what if everybody is 10 times as angry about the 8% that you're getting wrong as they were about the 12% that you got wrong without the video review? Because people are like, well, you see that, you know, how can they be making these mistakes? We've seen the video. This must be corruption. I think this actually feeds into a bigger, a much bigger problem football has than the problem of refereeing mistakes. Refereeing mistakes haven't been a part of football since the inception of the game. But the new problem that it has is the increasing conviction on the part of people, uh, you know, watching the sport all over the world, that what we are watching is corrupt. So you had at at an um, Everton-Manchester United match uh, on the weekend a big anti-corruption protest and fans holding up a sign saying the Premier League is corrupt. Now, this wasn't about refereeing. This was about the Premier League punishing Everton for breaking their spending rules. Yeah, the the, the, the 10 points that they were penalised. The 10 points that they're penalised. So Everton have decided this is because the Premier, you know, that 
Everton have been unfairly punished because of some corruption, some kind of nebulous corruption. Is but the the point is that the charge of corruption, which actually used to be quite rare, is now universal. And I think that refereeing, the the VAR uh, refereeing, the fact that mistakes continue to happen, even though re more referees are now pouring over video evidence and continuing to issue wrong decisions, has been one of the main drivers of the theme of this is corrupt. Uh, which you now can, now can see spilling into other areas. Mm -hmm. And I really feel that like a sport which ha increasingly has a reputation of being corrupt, or whether or not it is corrupt, the fact is that people feel it is. And that's really all that that matters. I mean, this is a spectator sport. It's about, it's about feeling. If people are like, this is corrupt. Corruption is almost a knee-jerk response to anything that goes against your team now. And I really feel as though this is a bad direction. Okay, so then is the, is the right direction, in your view, to take it right back to the referee and only the referee on the pitch? I think so. Uh, because, you know, the, for, you know, we, we actually had this system for, you know, more than a century. And, and, you know, it worked at least as well as the current system, but was a lot faster. So for, from my point of view, there is no uh, reason not to do it. I mean, people would make the argument, well, you can't sort of, you can't go back. Uh, yeah, I'm kind of like, well, why not? You can change, <laughs> you can change the rules really easy. It's a game. You know, we're, we're talking about a game which is which has clearly defined rules, which is easily controlled and, and changed. It's not like reality. It's not like the real world, which is this you know chaotic jumble of millions of different things that nobody can control. It's a game that can easily be. We can do whatever we want. And in fact, you see uh, football without VAR here in Ireland. You know, like the League of Ireland doesn't have it. In Sweden, the league doesn't have it. They refuse to bring it in because they prioritise the interests of the people who are actually at the game. Because if you're watching a game on television, you're watching all the sort the, the Spurs Chelsea game you mentioned. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was lots of oh, this is quite interesting. What mad things are the referees doing now? It had a sort of a drama of its own. Mm -hmm. But for people sitting in the stadium, they just didn't know what was going on. In the first half, they played for 23 minutes. There's 23 minutes of actual play, and 33 minutes of standing round, uh, waiting for VAR decisions. The redoubtable Ken Early of the Second Captain's podcast talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the proposal to extend the powers of the video assistant referee in soccer ball. Siobhan works in the Holiday Inn at Dublin. This morning, she got an email from the hotel telling her that she was being laid off because of the damage done to the premises during the riots last week. Siobhan spoke to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Live Line. Uh, the Holiday Inn at the top of O'Connell Street, uh, quite close to where the, uh, the riots took place. Uh, the Holiday Inn in the last few minutes had just sent out a letter to a number of their staff basically saying they're finished. Uh, Siobhan, good afternoon, Siobhan. Hiya. What, tell me, when did you get this letter? We only received it this morning. Um, we were called in for a meeting this morning yeah. as an update. And how long have you been in the Holiday Inn in, in O'Connell Street? It's a relatively new hotel. It's, yeah, I've been with them for just over a year now. Okay. And it's up there. People who haven't seen it, it's up there beside the Gresham on the corner of Calbrew Street. Okay. Yeah. What, what were you told this morning? We were told that we do not know when we will be reopening. So we are placed on layoff, uh, unpaid layoffs. Okay. So a lot of us like, have no other income. So we were told to contact social welfare to earn a bit of money. But that's all we were given. Like, we have, like, before Christmas, people basically have no job. Yeah. People have rent to pay. So you're it's gone. Very you're gone as of now. Basically, like, 
we're technically still with the company, but since there's no income with the company, we have been placed like basically on hold. And can I re- re- read out the letter that that you got because you sent it? It yeah. is re- it is with regret due to damage caused to the shop. It's a coffee shop at the front downstairs. Uh, during the riots on the 23rd of November 2023, the company has to notify you that you that you are being laid off without pay in accordance with your contract. With effect from today, Tuesday, the 28th of November 2023, until full repairs are made within the shop. May we assure you that the company is doing everything possible to get you back to work as soon as possible. We will ensure that the necessary work will be finalised in as short a period as possible and will notify you as soon as you are required to recommence work. As you may be entitled to benefits, this letter should be taken to your local social welfare office as proof of your being laid off. But you're, you're, if, if you were, they're, they're, they're basically saying your, your contract is gone. Basically, so a lot of us will have to look for new jobs. And, as you know, like right before Christmas, there's not a lot going. So the writers of last Thursday night, mm-hmm. whatever T-shirt they were, they were wearing... Or whatever banner they said they were operating under, most of them weren't operating under any banner. Um, they've actually caused you and your colleagues to lose your jobs. More or less, yeah. And some of my colleagues were stuck in the coffee shop when they decided to break in. Wow. And what was that like, Siobhan? They were terrified. They they had no other exit because uh, they were being locked into. The, they were locked in the bathroom for half an hour to up to an hour yeah. no access to the outside world. Good God. So. And, and for people who don't know the Holiday Inn, um, there's a lot of glass at the front and the side of it, isn't it? It's mainly a yeah. glass-fronted uh, hotel. Yeah, it is. And what damage was done, Siobhan? Uh, I think about three or four windows were broken in from the side of the building. Yeah. Including two from the hotel and one of ours and completely the terrace outside is uh, completely smashed up. And what, what, were, they, what were they hoping to, to rob or to get out of the, a hotel? We know, they, we we know, know. As, as predicted by a lot of people at six o'clock uh, on WhatsApp groups and Twitter, what, how long will it take them to, before they break into f- uh, Foot Locker? Um, but they were going in there for the high-end runners and then that awful attack on the bike shop up in Cable Street, they robbed the, high, the high-end bikes. But what, were they just just smashing windows for the sake of smashing or were they trying to get into the hotel to get at the bar or the till or whatever? I, I think they were just smashing because they could. Like, yeah. they just, like, they were taking furniture out of the coffee shop to throw at the police. And they were using that as weapons? Yeah. And Siobhan, how many how many workers got, got this letter? As far as you know, this morning from the Holiday Inn, there were eight of us in total. And what is the age group of the eight generally? The youngest would be uh, twenty, and the oldest could be twenty-eight, thirty. Okay, so they're all young people, and they were working full. They're full-time jobs. You're all in full-time, and two of them would be part-time. Okay, but the jobs are gone. Yeah, you're basically. being laid. You're being laid off without pay in accordance with your contract, with effect from today, Tuesday, 28th of November. Did, did they give you any indication how long the work will take? They, no, they didn't. They said it would 100% be longer than two months. Oh, and so, so it'll be in the, in, well into the new year? Yes. Yeah. 
And did anyone were you in were you in there as a group, Siobhan? Did anyone yeah, say so is there any other work anywhere in the? In they the... said that they will if there's any positions open in the hotel they will try but as of now there's nothing and it will be um, like it will go by order of seniority in staff so like the manager will get first and then the assistant and supervisors so so at the moment they said there's nothing available. That's Siobhan. Seemingly collateral damage in the wake of the riots that took place in Dublin city centre last Thursday, talking to Joe Duffy on this afternoon's Liveline. Now, happily, Joe tweeted after transmission that the programme team had received several offers of employment for Siobhan and her seven colleagues laid off by the Holiday Inn this morning. Finally, on this edition of Playback Daily, Vera Regan, Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD, spoke to Claire Byrne this morning about how accents are changing in Ireland. Now, when it comes to accents in Ireland, what do we find these days? Are there accents that have modern influences and some still go back many generations and perhaps they don't change? You're, you're absolutely right. There's change and there's maintenance. So what we find is we have a new uh, Irish English. We, call, we, we, uh, we have our own sort of English, so we're, we have Irish English. But we've, within the Irish English, we have old, local, traditional uh, Irish English. And then we have new, changing, innovative urban Irish English. And what tends tends to happen is changes happen in the urban centres where you've got a lot of different dialects converging and they sort of hit off each other and they they flatten each other out. And what happens is the overlapping bits are maintained, but the bits around the edges that might be a little bit unusual or a bit difficult to say, they get, kind of get lost in the new, what we call the supra-local. Mm-hmm. But what we find is is that not a, it, it, this isn't some sort of steamroller hitting us and we're going to lose all our speech. Um, we're, it'll change around the edges, and in Dublin it's changing fairly dramatically. But we're maintaining both the old local Dublin speech in many areas of Dublin, and we're also maintaining it in some of the more rural areas. OK, well, you mentioned the Dublin accent, and those mm. accents in, that, in the eastern region, they're, they're wide and, and varied. And I just want to play a clip now. This is the author, Frankie Gaffney, talking about Dublin English. This is from RTE's Cutting Edge in 2017. I'm very proud of the way I speak of the D- Dublin's renowned linguistic ebullience and uh, the wit and the humour and this kind of thing. Um, but it's getting decimated. It's, it's getting slowly, slowly taken away. There's certain things that we say. The common one that you get stick over is the do be. That's a perfectly grammatical thing to say. So, you, you know, conforms to perfectly grammatical rules, they say. They do be, he does be, and so on. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah, so it's the habitual present tense, right? And most languages have that just happens standard English doesn't have it and, and, and Dublin English does and you need it like you can't be saying you can't be saying like my dad is habitually in the pub you know yeah, so yeah. we'd be losing something if, if we didn't have it so it's the same thing second person second person plural um, use or years Is he right there now before we talk about the accent? I, I do be <laughs> right 
he's he's absolutely right, and he's right about the habitual, and he's he's making a very good point about why we're going to hold on to that, because that that you a linguist would say that's a functional explanation. It does a job. It keeps us aware that this is something that's happening habitually. He does be down the pub all the time, and that's why that that were, is going to be maintained. But other bits are kind of going out, and recently uh, some linguists looked at the the word use and they asked people in the liberties do you think that's part of your speech and they actually said not so sure Um, might be going out and the younger ones weren't using it and when you see the younger ones not using it then that may be going or um, for to for to to, to be doing it that's going out as as well people didn't accept that but um, the the core of, of Dublin English traditional speech is maintained and one of the interesting things is that there are clearly effective uh, issues there he really likes it he likes traditional Dublin life and what we find is that identity reasons are far more important than we realised um, so that f- uh, where um, things you might see a, a change coming the change could actually be stopped in its tracks if people decide they don't like it mm-hmm. um, there was a, a Mil- in Milton Keynes, we have a, a large mobile population and people come from all over the world. And when you've got mobility, you tend to have language change. So there are looser social networks. And pe- we, we expected that the people in Milton Keynes would go towards the standard, would, would, uh, uh, would go along the language change route. And actually, they didn't. And the linguists were puzzled and they said, why didn't this happen? They were holding on to the old Cockney bits and they were uh, not going to the standard and it was a, a, the reason was culture. They, these working class people were not aligning themselves with the establishment, with the educational um, uh, establishment, with um, employers and they resolutely used their um, the features of uh, working class speech in the same way as uh, traditional Dublin speakers uh, yeah. are, are, are very are very okay. keen well, to we, maintain theirs. And we heard Frankie there, but we also have in Dublin the famous Dart accent, which has travelled well beyond uh, Dublin now. And Paul Howard, of course, made this famous with his character Ross O'Carroll Kelly and perhaps more recently by this person, comedian Joanne McNally. It was amazing. It was amazing to walk around inside it, wasn't it? But it was, the inside of the Sydney Opera House looks like a college library. But it was so cool because there's a ballet ballet show on. There's all these like ballerinas kind of eating their lunch in the canteen and all. It was very, it was very cool. I'm glad I got to experience that. So thank you for Just for Laugh Sydney for having me. So where does that accent come from, Vera? So this is what you could call the supra-local norm. Um, it does come from the dart, and uh, you, you mentioned that, Claire, earlier. And it has evolved really into more mainstream speech of young speakers. P- speakers who are 30 will certainly um, have adopted this as their norm, and indeed older speakers now. And features of this will be, the, the as I say, the supra-local, the, the, the sort of features you'll get in English all over the world, things like uh, whether they're words or sounds. So in she's I noticed she uses uh, intensifiers, so cool. And she puts like at the end of her phrases. So all these like ballerinas. Um, now th- those are you'd find them everywhere. But the interesting thing is 
that actually these features, while they're part of World Englishes, they do embed differently depending on the context. So an Australian English or a Scottish English or an Irish English or Northern Irish English, all of these speakers would might use these features slightly differently. So while we, we might say that Joanne McNally uh, is, you know, using speech that has new features, she's nevertheless very much an Irish English speaker. We wouldn't mistake, mistake her, her yeah. as somebody who wasn't Irish. Okay, so, well, and that will, that will stick with us. OK, well, let's move outside of Dublin now. Here's a, another clip. Let's listen to this. I mean, a lot of people would probably appreciate this, you know. Um, he transported Core Park into old living rooms, you know, and he did that for decades. And, and then after that, you know, when games were televised more often, you could get, should games are televised from the first round? No, onwards. But, but the beauty about me, uh, and I, I always describe it to people, even when we had TV and I was out and I couldn't watch a game, when I was driving and listening to me all on radio, it was like I was watching the game on the windscreen. Now, that's Sean O'Halpin speaking on RT in 2018, Vera. So those accents that we hear and we're so familiar with, are they changing? Well, you can hear that Sean O'Halpin is not changing. And what's interesting there is, again, it's this the, the new interest in identity. He obviously likes Cork. Now, we know that he, he lived in Australia for a bit when he was young. He came to Cork when he was 11. And 11 is the age where people either adopt an accent or they don't. And we know this from language acquisition research. And he clearly has adopted Cork wholesale. And that's really what, what's interesting about it. He does, he's not making any, uh, any uh, attempt to do the super regional so the the rural dialects tend to be more conservative and he's going with that and particularly he's with his affiliation the GAA and traditional Irish interests. Professor of Sociolinguistics at UCD Vera Regan talking about changing Irish accents with Claire Byrne this morning. Sociolinguistics what a great thing to be professor of. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Nilo Shuridon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio app. Until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>